This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Dying is, it's a time, a space, a process of surrender and transformation. It's not predominantly a medical event. And we need to stop treating it as if it were. Welcome to the Be Here Now guest podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ram Das Fellowship live stream. Uh, we gather like this every month to share wisdom that can hopefully help us navigate this human predicament a little bit better in these times. And all of you here, you are the Ram Das Satsang. You are part of this sacred community, all of us pointed towards loving awareness and consciousness and being together. Tonight, um, we're really honored to be joined by Frank Ostaseski. Um, when I mentioned to our team that he was going to be joining us, everyone got really excited, basically saying that uh, of all of Ram Dass's friends, he's one of their favorites. He just told me that he and Ram Dass liked to have breakfast together. Um, but he's done so much work on death and dying and grieving and consciousness. And he has this incredible book called The Five Invitations. I think it's been my favorite read this year. Um, and he's internationally respected as a Buddhist teacher and the visionary co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project, also the founder of the Metta Institute. So there's a lot more to say about him, but he didn't want me to read his resume. So I'll just say we're really honored to be joined by this incredible wisdom keeper tonight. Um, and he's helped thousands of people through the death and dying process. So we're going to jump into all of this in just a few minutes. Before we do, I just want to give you some of the foundations. We'll be together tonight for about 75 minutes. Um, and we'll start with a lovely meditation and then go into a Dharma talk. And at the end, we open it up for audience Q&A. 
Um, but you're all watching from all of these different channels. And so the way we do this is you can type your question into the chat at any time. Um, Mangala is on the back end and she's collecting your questions and she's sending them to me. And we're going to try to get to as many as we can in our time together. And the request tonight is um, instead of asking sort of how-to questions, uh, to make them personal, to really um, be about your experience. Maybe Frank will talk into that a little bit later as well. So as we begin, I just invite you to take some deep breaths, to drop into your heart, and to welcome together the amazing Frank Ostaseski. We thank each of you for being here. And Frank, thank you for joining our community and bringing your wisdom and experience. Very happy to be with you, Jackie. And I want to say to you that if you need a nap during the course of this, <laughs> please, just please feel free to nap. You've had a long journey to get here. Thank you. I couldn't possibly nap through this. But when, when we're done, definitely. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> thank you. Well, I thought we would begin with a short meditation, but before we meditate, I just wanted to share an interesting idea that my friend Alan Liu, Rabbi Alan Liu, once shared with us. Um, he, you know, he held. He talked about the Judeo-Christian creation myth, right? The the story of Genesis, and and in that we learn on the first day, right? In that story, um, God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And God said, "You know, let there be." water and there were oceans and God said let there be earth and there were mountains and it goes on like that you know the story right even if it isn't your particular tradition you're familiar with the story I'm sure but what's interesting about that story is that at one juncture he said he creates man or humans for it not to be so um, specific in that way God when God created humans in that story he shapes the human out of clay yeah, and makes nostrils and a mouth. You know, it's kind of a little great little clay project that he does, you know. It's an interesting story. And then it's explained that what happens is that God breathes into this clay and it animates the clay. And this is how humans are formed. Well, this is the creation myth, of course. But what's beautiful about this story, and if you think about it, what it's really letting us know is the breath is the most intimate connection that we have with God. And uh, the breath is the vehicle uh, for reaching the transcendent, we could say. You know? The breath is what takes us into experience that's deeper than words, deeper than thought, yeah? deeper than form. You know? And it animates our human life and sustains it. And it takes us beyond the non-conceptual, yeah? beyond the conceptual, rather. I remember that um, Ramdas and I would often talk about this, about the breath and what's what's um, important about the breath and how come meditation practices focus on it so very much. And I think uh, this is an interesting way of describing it. So, okay, let's sit wherever we are. Let's find a position in which you can be relatively comfortable and yet alert. Okay. And feeling the weight of gravity on your body. Maybe taking a few intentional breaths just to begin. And then flinging open all of the doors and windows of the senses, doors of perception. 
odor of hearing and seeing and smelling and tasting and touching. Door of the mind. For a moment, let me draw your attention to the experience of hearing. Hearing the sound of my voice. Maybe there are other sounds in the room or outside the building where you are. Then you might also notice the silence that's here. How big is that silence? Is it just inside your head? Does that expand beyond your head, your body? And notice that the silence is undisturbed by the sounds. Sounds come and go. The silence is undisturbed. And just as a silence, the loving awareness can include sound, it can include the sensations of the body. Or you might become aware of the sensations of the breath, not the thought of the breath, but the direct experience. And you could notice where you sense the breath most vividly, most clearly. Is it at the nostrils, the way the air dances there at the tip of the nose? Or maybe it's in the chest, the way the ribs lift and separate. For some, we sense the breath most vividly at the diaphragm, the way it expands and contracts when the belly empties and fills. For some of us, we feel the breath in the whole body, the whole body breathing. Wherever you sense the breath most immediately, most viscerally, let your attention just rest there. Gradually, you become aware of the rhythm of the breath texture of the breath, the uniqueness of each breath. And 
And just as the silence and spaciousness of the silence can include all the sounds, that same spaciousness can include all the rhythms of the breath, textures of the breath. Until we begin to sense the breath is breathing us. And that there's no right breath, no breath that's too long or too short. Just sitting here gently, kindly. When we lose touch with our senses, we become homeless in a way. You let the breath bring you home. The most direct, most direct way to connect with God, the breath. Well, it's lovely to be here with this remarkable Sangha, this wonderful group of friends that have gathered here this evening, but also that we gather around our old friend Ram Das and remember how easy it was to love him and how hard it was sometimes to be loved by him. Take that in. Uh, Jackie and I talked about um, speaking to my five invitations, the genesis of this book that I wrote. The five invitations are basically, don't wait. Welcome everything. Push away nothing. Bring your whole self to the experience. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. And cultivate don't know mind. Those are the five. But we don't have time for all fives tonight. So we're going to just do one. And uh, see if it can uh, help us to kind of lead us into the others anyway. So this first one, um, and I made it first because I thought it belonged in that position. Don't wait. Don't wait. Waiting is full of expectation. You know, waiting for the next moment to come. To come, we miss this one. Waiting for the moment of dying. We miss all the moments in between. I was caring for a patient at her hospice once, and I was washing his back. 
And as I was washing his back, he kind of leaned over his shoulder to me and he said, I never thought it would be like this. And I said, uh, what? And he said, dying. And I'm very honest with people, curious. So I said, well, what did you think it would be like? And he said, well, I guess I never really thought about it. And you see, his regret at never having reflected on his own mortality, that was a greater cause of suffering for him than his terminal lung cancer, actually. Don't wait. I mean, that's the elephant in the room, right? The, the truth we all know, but agree not to talk about. And we do our best to keep it at arm's length. We, we, we project our worst fears on it. We joke about it. We try to manage it with euphemism, euphemisms, right? We, or sometimes we just avoid the conversation altogether. We can run, but we cannot hide. There's an old uh, Babylonian story about that you may know, actually. It's about a merchant in Baghdad who sends his servant to the market to buy supplies for the house. And um, the servant returns empty-handed, um, shaking with fear. And he tells the merchant that while he was at the market, a woman bumped into him. And when he looked at her more closely, he realized that she was deaf. And, he, and the servant said, and she looked at me and made this threatening gesture. And so now, lend me your horse, and I'll ride away from this city, and I'll avoid my fate. I will ride to Samara, and there, death will not find me. And so, of course, the merchant lends the servant the horse, and the servant rides off in fury, wild fury, and... A little bit later, the merchant goes to the market himself to sort of, hmm, maybe meet this death. And he encounters death also. And he asks her why she had threatened the servant that earlier in the day with such a threatening gesture. <laughs> and of course, death responds, oh, that wasn't a threatening gesture. That was a look of surprise. I was astonished to see him here in Baghdad because I knew that tonight I had an appointment with him in Samara. <laughs> I mean, to imagine that at the time of our dying, we're going to have the physical strength, the, the emotional stability, the, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime is a ridiculous gamble. The time for the conversation is now. So I'm happy we can have it together. As Jackie said, you know, I've dedicated most of my life to serving people who are dying. I, I helped to create the Zen Hospice Project, guided it for 20 or so years. Um, Ram Das and I created the Metta Institute together and taught hundreds and thousands of people, caregivers, to how to provide mindful and compassionate care. And some of those people that I cared for, we cared for at Zen Hospice, they came to their deaths full of disappointment. And others blossomed, right? And they, they walked through that door full of wonder. And what I saw that seemed to make the difference was the willingness to gradually live into the deeper dimensions of what it means to be human. It wasn't that they did some esoteric practice. They just were human. 
Well, I thought maybe we just sit down with Beth this evening and have a cup of tea with her and let her show us what matters most. And the good news about that is that we don't have to wait until the end of our life to realize the wisdom that death has to offer. You know, the people I worked with, they weren't spiritual adepts. They were people who lived on the streets, were unhoused, you know, and they lived in terrible conditions in rat-infested hotels and, and park benches behind City Hall. And they were alcoholics and they were prostitutes and they were people who barely survived on the margins of society. And lots of them... They wore this face of, of resignation, you know, and they were angry at their loss of control and they'd lost total trust in humanity. These are the folks I work with. And they came from all cultures, speaking languages I didn't always understand. And some of them had this deep faith that carried them through the process. And, and others, well, they swore of religion years ago. It was a Vietnamese man, Niu, and I remember, and um, he was really scared of ghosts. And so at the hospice, he was, he was sharing a room with a, a guy by the name of Isaiah, who was an African-American man, as it turned out. And, and, and Isaiah was very comforted from these nightly visits from his dead mother. You know? And so what a pair these two were. This is how we, this is the folks we work with. I work with this man, he was um, a hemophiliac, and uh, he contracted the HIV virus from a blood transfusion. But mm, not too long before, several months before, I think, he had disowned his gay son because uh, his son announced to him that he was also uh, positive with HIV. But now, here they were, father and son, in twin beds in the same room, being cared for by Agnes, the son's mother and the father's wife. Yeah. These are my teachers. Everything I know, everything I can share with you, I learned from these folks. And for some of them, dying was a great gift. You know, they, they made reconciliations and they, you know, made amends with long lost family members and they discovered the forgiveness and the love that they've been looking for their whole lives. But for others, they, they turned toward the wall and withdrawal and resignation and hopelessness and depression and, and they never came back again. All of them were my teachers. All of them were my teachers. What I want to emphasize tonight is that the, that the habits of our life, they have a very strong momentum. And they carry us through this life and they propel us toward the moment of our dying. And so the obvious question that gets raised by this is, what habits do we want to create? I mean, suppose we just stopped compartmentalizing death, you know, cutting it off on the rest of life. 
And we regarded dying as, as Ramdas did, as a final stage of growth, you know, that, that, that presented us with this, I don't know, unprecedented opportunity for transformation. Then we might go to death or go to people who are dying and say, how then shall I live? Because without a reminder of death, you know, we take life for granted. But when we keep it close at hand at our fingertips, you know, it reminds us not to hold on too tightly. And maybe we take ourselves a little less seriously. I, I, that's one of the things that's happened for me. And we let go a little more easily and we're kinder and more loving. What happens most of the time for most of us and, and in most of the care facilities that people die in is that we think of this incredible time as making the best of a bad situation. And that's an that's, that's a expression and a way of being that's really common in our culture. And it, it robs dying of its holy significance. Because dying is, is, at it, is it hard, as it's hard, you know, like it's a time, a space, a process of surrender and transformation. It's not predominantly a medical event. And we need to stop treating it as if it were. I think people... When they die in those conditions, they die frightened. And I think we can do something about that. In my experience anyway, dying is much more about relationships. It's more about our relationship with ourselves and those we love and God or spirit or true nature or how we might name the ultimate kindness in the universe. Then it's important to recognize that the work of being a companion to someone who's dying is to a large extent about addressing and supporting those relationships. Relationships that I would say are characterized much more by mystery than mastery. Dying's inevitable and intimate. And I've seen ordinary people, people like you and I, develop profound insights uh, at the end of their lives. It has them emerge as something larger, more expansive, more full and real than the small separate self they've taken themselves to be. And this happens sometimes in the final months of life or weeks of life or sometimes just in the final moments of life. This isn't a fairy tale. This regularly occurs for people. And you might say too late, and I would agree, that's too late. But here's the thing, if it can happen in those final moments of life, the value isn't in how long it happens, but the fact that it can happen. And if it can happen in the time of dying, it can happen now. We can harness the awareness of death to, to appreciate the fact that we're alive, to 
to encourage self-exploration, to clarify our values, to generate positive action in the world. Yeah. When people are dying, we see immediately that impermanence is woven into the very fabric of life. You know, everything's always coming together and falling apart all the time. And not just in the time of dying. And it's possible to hold it all in love and in compassion. Life's uncertainty, it gives us perspective. When we come into contact with how precarious this life actually is, oh my God, it's so precarious, right? Yesterday, I was talking to a, a big community in Turkey who are still recovering from the earthquakes back there in February with tens of thousands of people died. No one expected it that day. But one of the things we talked about with that group is how when we contact the precariousness of this life, we, we also come to touch its preciousness. And then we don't want to waste a minute. You know, we want to into our lives fully and use them in a hopefully responsible way. So don't wait. It's a, it's a path to fulfillment and an antidote to, to regret. Most of us imagine that death will come later. How many of you think death will come later? You know, just, just raise your hands to yourself, right? If it's true for you, death will come later, right? No sense worrying about it too much today. Later, when I'm old, you know, it'll come. And later, it creates this comfortable illusion of a safe distance. But constant change, it's not later. It's right here, right now. It's inescapable and perfectly natural our most constant companion. I mean, where's this morning's breakfast? Where's last night's lovemaking? Hello? Can someone please tell me where my blonde hair has gone to? Impermanence is not the cause of our suffering. We rely on it. I mean, that cold you have today, you know, it's not going to last forever. And virtual dinner parties eventually come to an end, you know? And, and dictatorships fall and presidential terms end. Now in permanence, life couldn't be. You know, without permanence, your, your son couldn't take his first steps. Your, your daughter couldn't grow up to be a scientist. It's humbling, of course, absolutely certain, but also unpredictable. My daughter was telling me that she's about to take a trip to Japan, you know, her and her husband are going to go to Japan. And so I was sharing with them that when I had been there and, you know, different places they could go, et cetera, and, and they're going to go at the height of cherry blossom season which is, of course, beautiful. You know, it's, it's stunning. The whole hillsides are covered with these 
delicate flowers that last just for a few weeks and then fall to the ground. And the Japanese sit under the cherry blossom trees and have picnics and really enjoy the, the permanent nature of those trees. What is it that makes those cherry blossoms so beautiful? Why do we love them more than plastic flowers? Plastic flowers last forever, right? Isn't it the brevity of their lives that invite us into their beauty, that captivate us, that engage us in wonder, gratitude? I had a heart attack um, a few years back, and, and then I had strokes. Um, it was a few years ago, Rambas called me right after my strokes. I was in the hospital, and he called me, and he said, so what'd you see? You know, as if I was going to have some big enlightening moment. And I said, don't you remember that you told me all you saw were the pipes when they were wheeling you through the hospital? It was like that. And so he, we laughed, you know. But I remember when I had the heart attack, they, I had a big surgery, and they... They split you open like a crab, you know, you cut down through your chest. and It's very intrusive, we could say. And, and recovery took months. And, and, um, and, you know, I'd taken care of a lot of people who, with long-term illnesses and life-threatening situations. And, but I can tell you that life looked really different from the other side of the sheets. When I wasn't sitting next to the bed, but I was in the bed. Huh? Death makes life real. There was a very famous Tibetan teacher. I won't say who he was, but he's died now. And um, he also had a heart condition. And so after I had a, this heart attack, he called me up. And uh, I thought, oh, good. He's going to let me know. He's going to give me the key, you know, the the way of working with this, you know, pain and depression and confusion, you know. And, and so I asked him about this. I said, you know, how did you deal with this, you know? I figured he was going to give me some esoteric meditation instruction or some kind of practice. But I said, you know, how did you deal with that? And instead, there was just this pause on the other end of the phone, you know, and then in a very wonderful Tibetan accent, you know, he said, well, I, I thought to myself, it's good to have a heart. And if you have a heart, you should expect that we'll have problems. And then he giggled in a very Tibetan way, and he reminded me to get plenty of rest, and he hung up the phone. That was it. No esoteric practice, no big understanding. Just, I think it's good to have a heart. And if you have one, you should expect it'll have problems. All beings feel pain. Who told us it should be otherwise? And I was talking to a, a woman today um, whose father is dying of um, lung cancer. And... Uh, Sometimes folks with cancer, they, they speak to other people who have cancer, and sometimes to me, about something they call a secret gratitude. And this gratitude um, 
it comes on sort of after the shock of diagnosis, you know, fades in some way. They experience this gratitude as a kind of relief. Like the life-threatening illness has given them some perspective. It's not that they like it. It's that they, but they say things like, now I can say no to more work. Or to people and activities that don't interest me anymore. Now I'm not obliged to say yes anymore. Now I can rest. Yeah. I think when we embrace impermanence, a certain grace can enter our lives and we can treasure experiences. We can feel deeply, all without clinging. And we're free to savor and touch the texture of, of every passing moment. And through this, we become more appreciative, more resilient. I remember after my heart attacks, I, I studied people, great teachers and others, psychologists that had had heart attacks. I wanted to know how did they do it? And one of them was Abraham Maslow, Abe Maslow. And, and he wrote something beautiful. He said, death and its ever-present possibility makes love, infinite love, more possible. Wow. You know, when I would talk to people about their dying, I, you know, they didn't talk to me about their regrets so much. You know, everyone thinks people are going to talk about that. They actually talked to me about love. And often, and again, these folks who are coming in off the streets or not some well-developed inner life. But they would say to me, you know, and I'd say, well, what's, what's important? They'd say two things in effect, in, in effect. They would say something like, Am I loved? And did I love well? Anyway, it wasn't an assessment of themselves. It was just those were the two things on their hearts and minds. And if those are the two most important things then, aren't they important now? And why wait? Don't wait. Be human is more than just getting born and getting a good education and finding the right partner and creating a comfortable life, you know. It's an invitation to feel everything. To come into direct and immediate contact with this strange and beautiful and horrible and, and perfectly ordinary thing we call life. And some of us will make love while others make war. We're seeing that today. And so to embrace the horror is also important. You know, to recognize that there are tr- the, the, the truth that there are babies, like my granddaughter, who was born into an incredibly loving family, you know, whose mother kisses a bright future into her cheeks every day. And there are babies like my friend Carolyn's whose mother left her in a dumpster. It's being willing to see that there are teenagers being shot in our schools. 
and others who are speaking truth to power. That there are night screams tonight in Gaza. From children that are too small to have to deal with these things. And there are other kids who are making tents out of bedsheets and living room couch pillows. There's a story, a story rather, I've shared many times. And yeah, I want to say it again. I, I was in my office one day doing something at the hospice and the telephone rang and there was this man on the other end of the phone and he said, uh, are you Frank? I said, yes. And he said, we understand that you could help us keep our son at home after he dies. And I said, yeah, I can do that. I said, you just call me when he dies and I'll come help. He said, no, you don't understand. He's just died. And I said, oh, all right. And I put down whatever I was doing and I drove to their house. They lived in the countryside. And I walked in the house and came into this room where this little boy was lying in a bed and mom and dad were there and a couple of dear friends. And um, I never met this boy. But I follow my intuition a lot. And so I walked up to his bed and I just leaned over and kissed him on the forehead, you know. And when I did this, the whole room broke into tears. Because while they had cared for him with great love and utmost attention, nobody had touched him since he died. And so this mom and dad and I, we talked about bathing his body. It was, this is a ritual that's been done in every culture, every religion. Millennium, right? And so we got towels and washcloths and basins of water. And this mom and dad, you know, they started bathing him. I remember they, they bathed him from the back of his head down his back, stopping at little nicks and scratches, abrasions that he had, you know, taking such exquisite care of him. And sometimes it was too much, you know. His dad would just go and stand by the window and, and look out the window and weep. You know, he just couldn't do it. And his mom, you know, she was bathing up the front of his body. She stopped at his toes and she said she counted his toes when he was born. And so she did it again. And every time they'd have to stop, you know, and, and tell me a story about him and sort of get current with what was happening because... It was impossible for them to really take this in. It was impossible. And so they would share a story and, and I would listen. That was my job, to generously listen, to devoutly listen. And then hand them another washcloth and send them back to their boy, back to the suffering, right? Because that's where the healing's always found, is in the midst of the suffering. And this mom, you know, she, she just loved him so much. And I remember that as she came very close to his face, you know, she was bathing, touching cheeks and his lips. 
And I had the sense that they had burned, she had burned through an incredible grief, actually. Not that her grief was done. It was going to be years before her grief would be fully integrated. But that there was some place that, where there wasn't separation between this mom and this child anymore. You know, maybe like the moment in which he was born or when she was breastfeeding him. And there was this, this thing that happens. The moms on this call would tell you, right? There's this experience where when a mother's feeding her child, they just, it's not a separate, it's one being. The child doesn't experience mom as something different and something separate and apart, but as one being. And often the mother feels that too. Not always, but often. And that's how it was in this, this time of bathing, you know. No, no separation. And I remember we dressed him in his Mickey Mouse pajamas. And his brothers and sisters came in the room and, and I asked him what he liked to do the most. And he liked to build model airplanes. And so we got all his model airplanes and we got some string and we made mobiles out of these model airplanes to hang over his bed, you know, so that they could have something to do and, and could contribute to this process as well. And eventually I, I left their house and came home to my son, who was same age as Jamie, seven years old. And I can tell you that I held him really close that night. There is devastation, there is hopelessness in this, in this world of ours. And there is the passion and the holy commitment to create a better future for everyone. That's also here. There is endless suffering in this world. And there is endless compassion to meet it. That's our work. Yeah, I want to stop now and, and, and have a bit of a dialogue with you and see if... Um, Maybe you have some questions that you want to put in the chat. And, and when, when Jackie said earlier, try to be personal, what I mean by that is, you know, we can get into how-to questions. Like, like my father has cancer and I'm trying to find the best hospice facility. Could you tell me where that is? That's a how-to question, right? A personal question is, or personal comment is, my father's dying of lung cancer and it scares the hell out of me. And I don't know what to do about it. So let's have a real dialogue with each other, okay? I'm sorry that I can't see each of you, but um, you can put a comment or a question in the chat and I'll do my best to respond to it, you know, um, as, as best as I'm able anyway. Um, so yeah. let's see, let's just make that happen. And Jackie, you yeah. can tell me. Thank you, Frank. Yes, people have started putting their questions in already. We have a few. Uh -huh. Um, and I just really wanted to start by appreciating so much of what you said, um, including one of the things that really struck me was the, the, the diagnosis and how that changes people. Um, yeah. and I, I have a dear friend, we, we talk about that several in my community talk about death and dying a lot, but he got something called a mortality clock and uh -huh. it gives, kind of gives an idea of, um, like counts down his days and he just says he doesn't sweat things anymore because of it. Um, yeah. 
And then there was this other person who, uh, it, I guess it's a Zen poster that is like, a ch- it's 52 columns across and 90 down as if you were to live 90 years. Uh-huh. And at the end of each week, um, you check off a box. Uh-huh. And she said her, um, she started to get so anxious about how fast time was going uh-huh. and that she wanted to slow it down. And to slow it down, she tried new, like um, novelty because novelty does something in the brain that makes time feel like it expands. Um, but even that became monotonous. And finally, she got to a place where she's like, oh, that presence, like, oh, that presence is where I find that awe and that wonder and the the savoring um, that you talked about. So I just think of all these ways that we can... Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's even an app out there called Croak. Oh, we croak. Yeah, I just heard croak, about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I did something for them a while back. And then every day or every once in a while, it sends you a thing. This is it, you know, and you could croak it, something like that. I don't know how it is. But yeah, I mean, you know, and, and lots of traditions, religious traditions, you know, Benedictines used to keep a skull on their desk. And, yeah. you know, there's always been reminders of that in different traditions. But, you know, just appreciating life is the way for me. I don't want to scare myself with death. Yeah. I want to appreciate life. You know, flowers, you know, cherry blossoms. That's a beautiful way to remind us that life is precarious and also precious. Yeah. 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 So um, let's jump into some of our questions. Uh, okay. this, is, this is from A.E. Anderson on Instagram. Uh-huh. Um, and they write, I work with young people who are overwhelmingly concerned with death and they feel like there's not a future for them. Uh, many young people feel as if they're already dead. Um, and I'm curious if you could speak into that phenomenon because I hear about that as well from lots of young people, this fact of like the future. What about yeah. this future? Yeah, and you know, it's all relative. What are young people, you know? But I would say that, well, let's just pick that group from five years old to 20 years old, okay? And because they have a little bit more cognition about dying or they can imagine more about it. It doesn't happen so much for um, kids under five. But, um, yeah, I mean, don't try and talk them out of it. That's the first thing. But be willing to explore. Get curious. Get curious. Well, what is it about this? Is it because I'm reading so much in the news or because there's been a death in my family? Get curious with them about it. That seems the most important thing to me. Um, trying to give them advice or talk them out of this story probably isn't going to work, you know. But, um, you know, oftentimes when I've been with kids that age, I'm going to call young people that age, and I... They just wanted to talk about it. And they wanted to talk about it with somebody who wasn't so afraid to talk about it. Yeah. And so if you can get clear that you don't have any advice to give, but you're not afraid to hear it, and they're not here to talk them out of it, well, then oftentimes they'll share that conversation with you. And in the sharing of the conversation, there can be a process of discovery. Yeah. And that sometimes is kind of a door to a much deeper understanding of their lives. So I, I would just start there. And I, I know it's hard in this because I'm sure there's more specifics that we could address if we were speaking one-to-one, but that's what I can do with this written question. But thank you for the question. And trust your good heart. 
your wise heart to be a reliable guide when working with those kids. Yeah. It's not going to abandon you. It's not going to let you down. Hmm. Well, well, um, you mentioned earlier this idea of uh, the, que- the two questions people are left with, am I loved and did I love well? Um, yeah. Leo Wolf on Instagram asks, what if our love isn't enough? I seek to love the things around me deeply, yet I feel it's not enough uh, to truth to truly express and cherish it. Um, I feel like the love I can give won't match the value or power of what I wish to love. Well, it's not a competition. It's not an equation that you have to fulfill. It's a doorway. You know, you go through love and it's a doorway. And, and I would say... Um, well, one way I talk about it is that love is like the fuel for the journey, right? Like if there's a mountain lake that you love, that you, you, that you want to go to and hike to, you got to really love the lake to get up the mountain, right? That's, otherwise you won't go. So, but it's not enough just to love the lake. You got to love the climb up the mountain. Otherwise, when the mosquitoes come out, you're going to turn back. So, what this does is speak to me about a love of truth. And I don't mean some big truth that Buddhism or anybody has the corner market on. I mean, just love to discover what's true. And when we discover what's true, then we understand something, another truth reveals itself. Yeah. And then another truth reveals itself. And so think of love as this fuel, not, um, not that it's enough that it's going to save you from everything, but it's the fuel that we need to, um, and fully engage with our life. Yeah. It's not going to fix everything. And, and I'll add one more piece, which is that if love is the fuel for the journey, right? Joy is the spark that ignites that fuel. Yeah. It has a kind of delight to it and a, and a, yeah. And, and, and it's got, joy's got curiosity in it. Like watch kids play, you know, when my granddaughter comes to my house, she says, Grandpa, let's play. And I say, okay. And I go to get the basket with all the puzzles and the toys that we have. And she said, no, Grandpa, I want to play. And really what she's saying is, I want to imagine. I don't want to, I don't have an outcome for this. It's just to discover. And so kids have that about them naturally. They just want to discover. And imagine if we lived into that, if we let our curiosity guide us in that. I think that's one of the one of the things I equate with joy is this unbelievable sense of wonder and curiosity. Yeah. So let joy and curiosity be guides for you in the in the in your in your time on this planet. So often we 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 trade truth for comfort. Yeah. And, and so for me, I really love to discover what's true, even if the content of that truth isn't something I enjoy or, or feel good about. I want to discover what's true. And that's what's going to help set me free. Yeah. Yeah. That requires so much authenticity and finding safety in that, it seems to me. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it won't feel safe. Yeah. yeah. It just won't, you know, and we do it anyway. Because the love is so strong, it propels us even into the territory which can feel momentarily dangerous. And it, it, 
it has to do with vulnerability, Jackie, that this vulnerability is not just weakness or the fear of getting hurt. To me, vulnerability is the most beautiful of human qualities because it has a quality of porousness to it. Like everything can enter and impress itself on your soul. All the beauty and horror of the world can impress itself on your soul. And, and when we allow that kind of vulnerability for ourselves, we come closer and closer to truth. And one of the truths that we come closer to is ultimately our invulnerability, the invulnerable nature of our nature. Yeah. We can't just jump there. We can't just jump there. We gotta, we gotta do our homework. That's a process. It definitely sounds like a process. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, back to another question. Alex on Instagram, he asks, how do we handle the feelings of anger or unfairness to loved ones dying? Yeah. Well, I don't know, Alex. I don't know how you're going to handle it, you know, but you're going to find your way. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes when people die, those of us who are left, we can be so cruel to ourselves. I mean, it's amazing to me that, you know, we will have so many judgments about ourselves. Oh, I should have brought them to the hospital sooner. Oh, I, I wished I had, you know, been there when they died. Oh, I, you know, uh, how could this be so those damn doctors and and how could God do this, you know? And there's so much anger and so much judgment at a time when we most need our tenderness, when we most need our, our kindness, yeah? And it's really hard when that anger starts to get directed at the person who's died. And that happens a lot. And so I don't turn away from that either. You know, we're mad sometimes at the person who's died, not because sometimes it's because of the conditions that led to their death, but sometimes it's just that we got left. And we don't want to be here without them. And we get angry at them. And that can be really difficult, you know. But my interest, again, is to be real with the situation. We're going to be angry at somebody, God or the doctors or the government or who knows what, or to the person who's died. And so um, I think we have to let, allow that anger to show up. And that what we'll look for in that anger is not, is that there's something in that anger which... I would call strength. Yeah. You can feel it in your back sometimes when you get angry. You just, mm, there it is, you know. You got some, you know, there's some uprightness that's part of that. Now, here's the thing. We don't necessarily need the anger, but we need the strength. But sometimes it's buried in the anger. And so it's, it's our way to access it in a way. So when we, when we find in the anger that strength, that's, that strength is needed. It's needed to change old habits. It's needed to to move us, you know, safely and continuously through this process of grieving. Fairness is another thing. Fairness is an evaluation. Fairness is our judgment about what should or shouldn't have happened, you know. And it's fair that everyone dies. I, I once was working with a group of pediatric nurses, uh, hospice nurses, and they always, they're just working with little kids who die. And I asked them a question at the beginning. Is it okay with you that little kids die? And they said, no, not, not at all. And I said, well, then you can't help these kids. You know, it has to be okay with you that this is part of the deal. And then you can really be with these kids in a way that's real and alive and loving. Yeah. 
But you won't, you won't be able to do that if you're in continuous um, disbelief or denial of, the, the, or, or holding a belief that that shouldn't happen. Yeah. So watch our, our ideas of fairness. Um, that sometimes they're just the way we, which we want things to ha happen. Yeah. Okay, Jackie. Yeah. Um, and maybe this, there's a couple more questions that are on the same theme. So I'm going to ask them. Um, one is from uh, Johnson Andveen, who says his, his dad died two years ago from a heart attack. He was left alone for hours and uh, he never got to say goodbye. And so he's asking, how do I find peace knowing yeah. that I didn't get to say goodbye? Yeah. His name was Jackson? Um, it says Johnson. Johnson. Okay, Johnson. I don't know if that's your first or last name. My apologies, but um, yeah, this is really hard, and um, and sometimes it's made harder, honestly, by certain spiritual communities who say that the most important moment is the moment of dying, and you know, when we breathe that last breath, and so we think we should be there for it. But here's what I think: I think your whole life matters, Johnson, and I think the whole life that you had with your father matters and that the love that you exchanged between you however it was exchanged or the understanding that flew that flowed between you however that was matters yeah and it isn't just about those last moments that last hour of life or you needing to be there with him in that moment or even him being alone you know and there was a guy at the hospice and i would always ask people how do you want to die you know, not that we could always make that happen, but, you know, their story about how they wanted to die shapes the way in which they die and maybe the way in which they live their life. And so this guy said, alone, I don't want anybody coming in here messing with me. I said, okay. And so I put a sign on his door, you know, Peter, leave him alone. You know, and the volunteers and the nurses, they got furious with me. Like, well, you can't do that. No one should die alone. And, you know, and I said, wait a minute. We didn't come here to, you know, instruct Peter how he should die. We came here to be with Peter in the way in which he will die. Yeah. So some people actually want to make this choice. I don't know that that was the case with your father. I don't want to suggest that. But what I know is that your whole life with your dad matters. Okay? Concentrate on that. That's how you come to terms with this. Okay? And it's never too late, you know. The relationship with your dad continues, even now that he's died. The relationship continues. So if there's stuff you still got to say or work out, not too late. Me and my mother, my mother died, you know, 55 years ago, but we're still working stuff out sometimes, you know. So um, the relationship continues, yeah. And just give your, give your focus to the whole life, not to just the final moments of life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, so this might, you might have just answered this, but they might have more to say. Heidi on Facebook, she, asked, she said that her husband died yesterday. Oh. And that uh, even, at the ho even at hospice, um, people were touched by his spirit. But already she misses his presence so much. And how do I, she asks, how do I find that presence again? Oh, Heidi. Oh, my. Oh, Heidi. 
就是下次再下次再说吧。Of course, you miss him, and of course, you might be scared about not being able to connect with him in the way that you connected with him just a day before, or, or the way in which other people say they might be connecting with him. You'll find your way, Heidi. There's no solution. There's no magic formula for this. You know. All you do is, you keep loving him. You just do your best to keep loving him, and you call him out by name, and you, and you get a picture of him, and you put it someplace in your house, if in a place of honor, on the mantle, or you make a little altar for him. And every day you go by that mantle, you go by that altar, and you talk to him, and you just tell him about your day. You know, not, you don't have to ask him like show up in a dream or do these things. Just talk to him every day, and express your love for him if that's what's true. Yeah. Or tell him how your day's going, and maybe it's not going so great. So just hold a conversation with him. Yeah. That's not weird. It's a really good thing to do. It's a really good thing to do. And you know, sometimes you might feel a response from him, and it isn't woo woo, you know. But you might it might just come as a memory of him, not necessarily as a dream or some kind of symbol. But just as a memory of him, like you remember ah being in the woods together, taking a walk, or you remember making love, or you remember ways that you were kind to each other. Yeah. So that's how we come back and we we come to include the presence of someone who's died, and you recognize that your grief, which can feel like sadness, but also like anger, and or like numbness, or fear. That those are all faces of grief, and grief is the way we love someone after they die.、Mm. No right way to grieve. It's just your way, Heidi. Trust your good heart, your wise heart. It will not let you down. It will not abandon you. You can trust it. Okay. Got it, Heidi. No formula. It's just you being really honest with yourself. Okay. And talk to him every day. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to mention because there are a lot of questions, and that's for Heidi. But I think what you just said is for so many people. Who are on this? Because there's some questions here. They don't have names. They're handles, so I don't know how to refer to them. But、um, someone whose dad died two weeks ago,、um, someone whose mom passed away a year ago today, and just having the suffering of missing her and all that she went through,、um, and several others. So I just wanted to speak into to those people. They don't necessarily have questions, but they yeah. And I want to add actually that. You know, even though there is enormous pain with these losses, that the, the ones you were just mentioning, Jackie, you know,、mm-hmm. when someone we love dies, it's hard, you know, and it there isn't a simple way through the process, you know, and it time this this idea we have that time heals, it's garbage.、Mm-hmm. Time does not heal. Time and attention heal. Time and loving attention can heal, right? The willingness to inquire, the willingness to discover, to to, to look honestly, that heals. Yeah, but time alone doesn't heal. But、um, 
There's also one other piece that I want to add, which is that when someone we love dies, there's a legacy that comes with that death. And it isn't necessarily that they built a big building or they left us, you know, an inheritance, <laughs> but there's an introduction to suffering that comes with that. And that's a legacy. And as you work with that, and as you find your way through that, that's an incredible gift because you have it then in your heart and you will treat others differently because of it. Yeah. Like when your father dies and you go to a party and no one mentions it, you know, they leave you isolated in your grief. But you won't do that now because you know what it's like. And so you will bring that forward. And, and that will be one of the many ways your compassion may express itself in the world. So it's not just all about loss. It's also about what's learned in that loss. That's important. Thank you. So this is another question. Again, it doesn't have a name. The handle is I Heart Snow. It's on Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, and they ask, how do you help someone uh, in the question? They say they call them the li a little star seed. But how do you um, help someone who has suicidal ideations? Um, you know, are they welcoming death too much? Are they diving in too deep? Um, what are, what's your way yeah. of working with that? Oh boy. So this is a question that I have to be really careful with because I don't know any of the circumstances around this person's suicidal ideation. So I'd want to be really careful that we don't give general answers here. There's not a how-to, there's not a, a way to do this. Mm -hmm. But um, I would, in this case, really encourage you to seek out some professional help. People who have you know, live near you or live near this person and have the skill sets to deal with this because you can't, we can't answer this as a bulleted point or, an, you know, in a chat question, it's just too complex. Yeah. And we can't, um, um, we can't always assess clearly why or what's leading to that person's um, suicidal ideation. But if it's there, uh, it needs to be addressed. That's all I can tell you. It needs to be addressed. Don't, don't spiritualize it away. Don't think it's, you know, just this person learning a lesson about themselves. Get help. Yeah. Yeah. There's. Um, thank you for that. So important. There's lots of resources and maybe Mangala can put some in the chat um, for that as well. Um, so Tracy talks about, she's on Instagram and she talks about that last, on this theme um, last year, her father took his life and she asks about the transition transition and afterlife. And the question is, is he happy now? So I'm curious if you could talk, speak into your experience or knowledge or knowing or how you work with people on that. Well, subject. again, this is, what's tricky about this is that there are many, many teachings about what happens and some, for some people, nothing, you know, teachings about nothing happens after you die. So depending on one's cultural or religious tradition or family traditions, there may, or there may be different belief systems or faith about what happens after we die. It's a question I ask everybody um, who is in the hospice. I'd often ask people, 
what do you think is going to happen after you die? And not that I, I thought they had the answer or that I certainly didn't have the answer. But I think that the story we carry about that does shape the way in which we die and I think also shape the way in which we live our lives. So it's an important question to ask of ourselves and, and of others. But I want to be really careful not to impose any kind of story or idea. There was a woman in the hospice who was an ardent Christian scientist, and she had deep faith, really deep faith. And, you know, she just was sure that she wouldn't be embraced by Jesus. This was her faith, and, um, and so we talked about that a lot, you know. And then her granddaughter came to visit, and her granddaughter said, Grandma, you don't have to worry when you die, because I've been reading some books, and it talks about what happens after you die. And you don't have to worry because everybody who died before you is going to be there to meet you. And so don't worry, Grandma. It's going to be okay. And Grandma became terrified. Because what Grandma had told me but had not shared with her family was that her husband, Edgar, had been beating her most of her life. And he died five years before. And now the idea of spending eternity with Edgar was terrifying to her. So I'm really careful about not imposing any idea, even my most well-meaning idea, even if it's the one I have the most faith with, I don't impose it on other people. I discover with them oftentimes what they think or feel or believe, yeah? And so it's not, what's important here for the person asking this question is, what do you believe? Not what, what can I tell you, you know, because I don't know you and, you know, what is it that makes sense to you? I mean, for me, and we, impermanence is not about just things ending. It's about things, it's a law of change and becoming. When a tree falls in the woods, it falls down and it rots into the ground and it becomes something else. Everything that I know of is subject to that kind of, that law of change and becoming. And, and maybe it's so with death as well. So there are many, many teachings and you can read about those teachings, but be careful that it just doesn't confuse you. Look and see what, makes sense to you in your heart of hearts okay thank you thank you thank you um we're getting close to the end uh and oh, i want to ask okay. two more questions before oh boy. we wrap up okay um and so one is th there's a couple of people have asked questions around this um and it's how do you the gist of it is how do you care for yourself in doing this work how do you oh, drain? Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking that. That's a really important question. I'm sorry we didn't get to it earlier. Um, I, I do many things. I do many life-affirming things. But here's something very specific. When I was running the hospice, we'd sometimes have 20 or 30 people die in a week. And so there was a grief. And I knew many of them. I cared intimately for them. And so when I would, when they would die, I'd feel a lot of grief, you know? And so I do a few things. The first thing is I went to my cushion. I went to my meditation cushion and I used that process of meditation to stabilize so that my continuum of my mind could be clear and I could be with whatever emotion or mental mm, content was arising. Yeah. That was really important for me, but for me, it wasn't enough just to go and sit on my meditation cushion because I didn't want to do a spiritual bypass around any of this, right? So I went to a body worker and there was a really good guy and, and 
I would go in to him once a week, lay on his massage table, and he didn't do any woo-woo stuff, you know, no new agey anything. He, I would just walk in and he'd say, well, where are today, Frank? And I'd say, well, just here on my chest or my shoulder, you know, and he'd just place his hand there, you know. And I would weep for about an hour because there was something about his touch that opened the physicality of grief, that it's a physical experience. It's not just an emotional experience. And there was something about my relationship with him, the trusting relationship I had with him that allowed me to just weep and weep and weep. And we never talked about it. We didn't process anything. He just said, see you next week. And I'd say, yeah, see you next week. And I'd, I'd leave and come back. So there was a third thing that I did. So I sat on my cushion. I took care of my body. And the third thing I did was I served. And that was really important to me. So I would go to the, the general hospital, San Francisco General Hospital, where I knew the nurses. And I would go to the maternity ward. And there, there were babies that were born to addicted mothers, addicted to alcohol or crack cocaine. And they would hand me these little babies. And I would sit in a rocking chair with them. And I would rock these little babies, you know. And they would just tremble and shake and, 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 and cry. And I would just stroke their throats and their chest and bellies, you know, because they couldn't take in any nourishment. But we found that after we stroked their throats and their chest and bellies, they could take in nourishment. And so I would do that for an hour or two sometimes before I would go home to my own children. And that was really important to me because often the people I was taking care of, adults who were dying, I couldn't soothe their suffering. I couldn't, just couldn't do it all the time. So these little ones, when I could be a salve to them, when I could really soothe their suffering, it really gave me a certain kind of resilience, actually, and a, a willingness to keep going. And so those were ways that I took care of myself. I um, got to my cushion, I did some body work, and I did loving service. Those were things that worked for me. You, you have to find out what works for you. This is sort of a follow-up question, but did grief... Does grief feel like overwhelming to you at times? And how do you sure. deal with that? How do you deal with the overwhelm of grief? Well, one of the things I've figured out along the way from just hanging out with it so much is that when I'm overwhelmed, I'm not usually feeling anything. Mm. When I'm overwhelmed, I'm not actually in contact with what's going on. And so I have to be still a little bit and I have to sense more carefully and sort a little bit more precisely to see the very specific manifestations of grief. And that each of those are quite workable. The overwhelm is, I think I can't do it. And I give up in a certain way. Then I don't really feel anything. I just feel a certain kind of chaos. But it's not, um, uh, it's all workable in its own, like in, let's say, small doses, you know, or in, its, in, its, in, in the different expressions of grief. You know, it's physicality, it's emotional, it's mental states. So that's how I work with it. Yeah, I, I stay with each dimension of it. Yeah. That's great. So uh, this last question, uh, a couple of people have asked about near-death experiences. Um, and one of them specifically, uh, again, it's a handle instead of a name, but they uh, talk about having that expanded experience, the grand vision, and now having a hard time sort of settling back into this reality um, and kind of wanting and not being able to stay in that expanded state. Do you have any yeah. words on that? Well, this is tricky again, because 
it's such a personal experience. And in the so-called near-death experience or the nearing-death experience that happens, um, yes, there are similarities across cultures, actually, but um, there are also a lot of differences, yeah. Uh, my friend Kathleen Dowling Singh, who died a few years ago, uh, she, she came up with a term called the nearing-death experience. And I think that's actually really important to talk about. Um, and, and one of the things that, let's see if I can just figure out this briefly. Um, Kubler-Ross, who I studied with and Ramdas studied with, and, you know, she had those famous five stages and the last of which was acceptance. And I, I knew Elizabeth and she never thought of these things as a linear process, but they got sort of popularized that way. And my experience is that acceptance is not the final state at all. That acceptance has a, is still a, a choice of the ego. Mm -hmm. I'm going to accept. I'm going to recognize my mortality and accept. But what I've noticed is that post-acceptance or after acceptance comes oftentimes another stage, which we could call chaos, which is that once I've accepted my mortality, the sense of self starts to break down. The sense of separate self that I have, it starts to break down. And there's a kind of chaos because we don't know how to, what to identify with anymore. And out of this chaos, sometimes a deeper state emerges, an infinitely deeper state, which is surrender. And surrender is, it's not the same as letting go, for example. Like when we let go, we have a, we have a sense of distancing ourselves from someone or something. Right? So when then we feel like we're coming closer to something, something that's already familiar to us. And I think that that state of surrender is not uncommon, is some part of what happens in those so-called near-death experiences. And I think we can have those states of surrender without ever having a near-death experience. But it's not something we can make happen. It happens. It happens to us. And, um, and again, it's this feeling of coming closer to something rather than distancing ourselves from something. And it's very expansive surrender. It feels expansive. And many of us have had this experience, but we haven't named it as that. So I think that one way I talk about this is the experience of surrender. And sometimes I just have people remember experiences of surrender that they had at some juncture in their life. And, and then how they kind of re-integrated that or came to include that in their day-to-day -day life, you know. So the challenge with the near-death experience is we keep wanting to have it. We get greedy about it. There's a grab to it. We want that experience to happen again, even though, and we keep saying, how do I adjust to this life? Well, part of it is that let go of the grab. Let go of the greed for the experience. Yeah. That's a very short answer to a very complicated subject, but there we go. And I'm conscious of our, uh, our time. so. I want to be respectful of that. Well, thank you so much. I, I think we could probably do at least another hour, hour and a half. Okay. Conversation. You call, I'll come. <laughs> I have so many more questions for you, but this was really, and I really appreciate how you speak of things. There's, I don't, I would imagine there's lots of people out there who are having this similar experience of like the resonance of the truth of how it lands in us. Um, I know that's my experience of speaking with you and listening to you. So um, so I know that you don't uh, sort of work with people one-on-one. -on -one, um, oh, yeah. 
Yeah. But yeah. you do offer teachings. Um, so do you want to I tell do. people how to do how where they? It's you want to tell people how to find those. Yeah. So so briefly, um, uh, I, I don't work with people individually anymore because I've had my own strokes. I, part of my self care is limiting what I do and, and reducing my activities. So I don't see people one to one anymore. Um, you can go to my website. Of course, everybody's got one of those, frankostaseski.com. And maybe uh, Mangala can put that in the chat somewhere, Frank Ostaseski. And um, so that will sometimes, it has resources there and other things you can read or videos you can watch. And then I teach a lot at the Upaya Zen Center, U-P-A-Y-A Zen Center with my friend Roshi Joan Halifax. And we we're, we do a whole series of things. We've got one coming up on um generosity and gratefulness around Thanksgiving. And then I'm going to do a series in January, one with Tara Brock, one with uh, Joan Halifax, and one with um, Sharon Salzberg. So we'll do, I'll do a series of teachings with them. So I do a lot of, a lot of my teaching comes through Upaya Zen Center. So if you go there, if it's not listed yet, be patient, they'll get to it. They'll, they're pretty good about listing upcoming programs. They're just, they haven't posted all of 2024 yet. And I'm assuming you all have a newsletter and people could sign up that way. And yeah. Also, if you go to frankostaseski.com, you can, you know, join the mailing list and we'll let you know when things are happening. Sure. I'm going to encourage people to do that. And also, if you're not already to sign up for the Ramdas uh, mailing list as well, because we have a lot of stuff coming up in December, including a new vinyl that's coming out of Ramdas recordings, uh-huh. um, as well as uh, the Maui retreat that I know you have been a part of in the past. Yeah. Um, we're going to be live streaming that. So um, just those are great ways to stay connected. Um, and I also want to encourage everyone. I know that I had, there were so many gems in this 75 minutes together that I'm going to go back and listen to this at other points. And I encourage others to go back and listen and share with your friends. And so um, we have replays that are available. That's ramdas.org slash live stream dash replays. And we do offer all of this. We do as much as we can for free because we just want the teachings to continue. And we are an organization um, and have to be sustained. Um, and so if you're able to support by donating, you can text um, Satsang to 91999, or you can click the link that Mangala will put in the chat. Um, but I just want to end with a great big thank you. I thank you to all the people that showed up tonight, but especially to you, Frank, for being here and for sharing your wisdom and for just... All the ways that I loved how you said that, how we surround our friend Ramdas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just such an incredible honor to get to speak with you and those who have been a part of this journey um, and bringing this wisdom to the world. Well, thank you, Jackie and, and Mangala as well. And, and to Love, Serve, Remember, to Raghu and my friends at Love, Serve, Remember. And mostly I want to just send my love to my old buddy Ramdas, you know. Um, we traveled lots of years together and um, I was there for the memorial celebration, I remember. And um, anyway, I love him and I miss him. Yeah. I miss him. You know, I miss the human form of Ramdas. Yeah? I miss giggling with him and swimming together and, and uh, arguing together. <laughs> Reminds me of that that idea of grief and praise are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Love, yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I hope that somehow my presence and my words were of some small support to you. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.